That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily, newly designed China Access Newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at SupChina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Just a little over three hours ago, around 10.45 a.m. Eastern on Tuesday, August 2nd, a plane carrying a congressional delegation headed by Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi touched down in Taipei. In the weeks prior to this, from the time her plans were first leaked to the press, uh, there's been nonstop commentary on what this means. Wisdom or folly, standing up to a bully or baiting a bear, enhancing Taiwan's security or undermining it. And there's been no shortage of speculation on what Beijing's reaction to it might be. Already we've seen part of it. Uh, Xinhua has announced that the PLA will conduct a three-day military exercise in the Taiwan Strait and in the waters around the island, something that looks suspiciously like a blockade. And there's already been some sanctions imposed, bans on importation of certain vegetables and, and uh, other agricultural products from Taiwan. So as we now enter what might be called the fourth Taiwan Straits crisis, I'm delighted to welcome John Culver to the show. John was a senior intelligence officer with the CIA for 35 years. He served as national intelligence officer for East Asia during the second Obama administration and is currently a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub. If you aren't already following him on Twitter, you really should. He is uniformly smart and deeply informed. He's at, at John Culver. 689. John Culver, welcome to Seneca. Oh, it's great to be here, Kaiser. I'm a big fan of the show and uh, hope I can measure up. Oh. I think that events of the past 24 hours will help me. <laughs> uh, John, I, I wanted to have you on the show actually for quite some time. I mean, we've, uh, we've, we've talked about getting you on, but what prompted me to reach out uh, was something that you actually tweeted just a couple of weeks ago 
right, you know, soon after the news broke that Nancy Pelosi had revived her earlier plan from April to visit Taiwan. You might remember that in April she said she was going to and then got COVID and canceled. So you wrote about the last Taiwan Straits crisis, the one touched off by Li Donghui's decision to accept an invitation to speak at Cornell, uh, his alma mater, in 1995, and that went all the way through the elections of 1996. Uh, what intrigued me was the angle that you took there, which was to try to you know, channel Beijing's view uh, in a very nice display of the kind of security dilemma sensibility that I usually find just so lacking within the Beltway. Uh, so before we get into the crisis de jour, which we will, I promise you, let's revisit the last go-round and get a sense of what we should learn from that, what the major differences are uh, now 27 years later, and perhaps most importantly, what lessons Beijing absorbed from that episode that might be uh, relevant today. So let's start with kind of just the facts, a 30,000-foot look at what transpired in the months before and after Li Donghui's visit through the elections of the following year. Sure. Um, so, of course, prior to Li Donghui's visit, uh, the U.S. had had a longstanding interpretation of its responsibilities under its uh, foundational China and Taiwan agreements, the three uh, communiques with China, the Taiwan Relations Act with Taiwan, and uh, something that wasn't really spoken of publicly then, the so-called Six Assurances of mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan. And under the self-imposed strictures, the U.S. had said that a, a leader-level visit, a presidential visit to the United States by the leader of Taiwan would not be consistent with that policy. Um, and then suddenly it was. So and if my memory serves, it was uh, announced around April. And I believe the visit commenced in, in May um, to Cornell. And um, immediately the Chinese, you know, accused the U.S. of perfidy there in the Clinton administration because apparently the Chinese foreign minister had been assured by the U.S. Secretary of State, Warren Christopher, that nothing had changed, and then suddenly President Clinton decided that he needed to change it. So you, you had then the, you know, and, and here's there's some similarities to what we've watched in the last week, this kind of rising level of warning coming out of Beijing, hoping, I think, to get the U.S. to change its mind. Or if, if Li was going to be allowed to come to keep the visit very low-key and not allow it to become a major political event uh, in the United States and in Taiwan. So that's, again, a similarity to today. The Chinese were, I think, relatively low-key up until today um, for the same kind of reasons. And now we're going to see, you know, so we've had the prelude, and now we're going to hear the, the, uh, the fugue um, and the culmination and climax uh, of their operatic piece. And I don't mean to diminish the seriousness of this, but a lot will depend on um, how the visit is portrayed as either very high level and official and gets a lot of attention or whether it's, you know, like the last couple of CODEL's congressional delegations to Taiwan this year, relatively low key outside of the specialist community. Right. So before we get back into into the current crisis, let's go back and, and sort of finish out what happened after the visit. What was the Chinese response? What was the U.S. response then in back in 95? So when, when Li Donghui arrived in the United States, and I haven't checked the timeline, so this is all from memory, the Chinese uh, re, uh, recalled their ambassador to Washington, uh, a, a gentleman named Li, Li Daoyu. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the first signal of deepening displeasure. Um, the fact is when Li arrived in the United States, arriving on the West Coast and then moving eastward to go to Cornell, he arrived with a full plane of press. 
So it was clear this was going to be a very high-profile visit. Uh, and then internally in China, as we would see in, in the coming weeks, uh, they started the largest cross-straits military exercises that we had seen, I'm going to say, ever. And certainly the only military exercises on the Taiwan Strait since normalization. And uh, those consisted of ground force amphibious drills, some air activity, all of it over Chinese territory, none of it out in the strait. The activities in the strait or near Taiwan, though, were the announcement of these uh, missile target areas in the ocean. And in that summer of 95, I think the single missile closure, missile closure area was um, north of Taiwan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and they fired four um, short-range ballistic missiles, a weapon that the PLA had only recently acquired as a demonstration of the seriousness of their uh, their feelings over the Li Denghui visit. Um, and then stopped and then started to kind of reload, re-engage with the United States a bit to try and see if the U.S. was going to be willing to limit the damage and apparently uh, receive no, no signal that that was going to happen. The U.S. stood by the president's decision to allow Li Denghui's visit. And they started to prepare for the coming year uh, when Taiwan in March of 96 would hold its first direct presidential elections. And the, the Taiwan calendar back then was kind of broken up in an election cycle. The legislative elections were in January and the presidential elections were in March. Um, and so we saw them prepare to do that. Um, and again, it was going to ramp up to be even larger than what we had just witnessed that summer. That took place. Um, I think one constraint on the Chinese in March of uh, 1996 was that uh, they suddenly had some very severe weather over the training area. Mm. So once again, they fired missiles, this time into closure areas directly off of Taiwan's two main commercial ports, um, but curtailed that after four launches. And there was also, in the middle of that, very senior diplomacy with um, the State Council uh, representative uh, in the U.S. meeting with uh, National Security Advisor Tony Lake and a whole coterie of senior Clinton officials. And when that culminated, um, you know, it, it showed that there was an end point to on China's display of its anger, which was that election, which Li Dunhui won pretty handily. And then what I think the main lesson the Chinese learned, though, was what happened in the ensuing 18 months when President Clinton met with Chinese President Jiang Zemin uh, three times, culminating in uh, the next year in Shanghai with Clinton enunciating uh, the three no's, which again, from memory, so this may be a little shaky, were that the U.S. would not recognize Taiwan independence, would not recognize a separate state of one China, one Taiwan, and would not become involved and embroiled in uh, cross-strait matters. And so the Chinese kind of took the lesson that their instruction to the United States and Taiwan at least had been learned, right? and that there were no repetitions of high-profile, senior-level Taiwan visits to the United States. Now, Taiwan presidents since 96 have visited the U.S., but it's been done in a fairly low-key manner. They're transit visits. In many cases, they don't even come to Washington. Usually, they're en route to visit one of Taipei's few remaining uh, diplomatic allies in Latin America. And that's sort of the rationale for a uh, U.S. stop. And what about the U.S. response to it? Uh, I mean, in fact, they moved two carrier groups from the 7th Fleet, did they not, to the mouth of the Taiwan Strait? Well, they had you know the U.S. has one carrier home base still today, uh, as it was then, uh, home based in Japan. So when it became clear the Chinese were going to uh, stage an even larger set of exercises coincident with Taiwan's presidential elections, uh, Secretary Perry uh, determined that he would display a U.S. show of force and and uh, and fortitude, and so 
directed that both the USS Independence was a carrier home ported in Yokosuka, Japan, and then the USS Nimitz, which at that time was underway in the Indian Ocean, would be dispatched toward Taiwan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At the time, you know, he knew and had been advised that China had no means to threaten U.S. carriers unless we literally sailed down the middle of the Taiwan Strait. So he, he knew that it was a fairly low risk, high gain uh, decision that the president would support um, and that uh, it was really more about the demonstration than the effects. So the, the independence arrived on station a few days before Taiwan's election in March um, and, you know, sailed in circles uh, and never saw the PLA because the PLA was all directly on their coast, not over Taiwan. The Nimitz actually never got through the Strait of Malacca before the election was over and the whole fracas had kind of died down. Hmm. But it was more the the image of the thing, that the U.S. would send carriers. And the Chinese, of course, took a deep lesson from that. And in the aftermath of 1996, and then especially the Belgrade embassy bombing in 1999, began to pursue very capable counter-carrier forces, including the ability to track U.S. aircraft carriers around the world. Hmm. So before we get into China's response and, and the lessons that it learned, let's talk a little bit about how you would characterize the way that American policy elites understood how that crisis played out, the 95-96 crisis. What's the American narrative on how that went? Well, it's it's kind of an interesting crisis because every side involved, uh, the U.S., China, and Taiwan could all declare victory. Right. Um, because there was never a real threat that China was going to use military force, uh, the Unlike today, the threat of imminent hostilities or major loss of life or destruction really wasn't present. Um, so for, for China's part, it could claim that it had taught a lesson, you know, something they love to do, uh, as they have militarily in Vietnam and India and North Korea or in Korea. Um, the U.S. could claim that it stood up for its uh, partner and in fulfillment somewhat of the, of the vague uh, Taiwan Relations Act commitment to view any use of military force as a matter of grave concern. Um, and then for Taiwan, they successfully conducted their first d- direct democratic elections um, of the le- uh, well of the legislature in January and then the presidency in March, um, and were not intimidated. And you know, arguably, Li Denghui's turnout uh, and vote totals were higher because of what the Chinese were doing uh, than they he, it otherwise might have been. So it, everyone was a winner. Uh, today, it's hard for me to find winners. It looks like it might be a more of a lose lose situation. Or a lose-lose-lose, in fact. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, China in 1995 was a very, very different country in terms of its capabilities, both in absolute terms and, and relative to the U.S. and, of course, to Taiwan. Um, that alone would certainly, one would imagine, impact the way that China responds this time. In the 95 to 96 crisis, to what extent was China's sense of its own weakness a factor that delimited its actions? And to what extent are we likely to see China's sense of its own relative power now, 27 years on, uh, affect its decision-making as we enter this this next crisis? Yeah, I, th- I think, first of all, that you can tell from the nature of the exercises that China had no real capability to threaten the United States or even to you know, threaten Taiwan and use military force in a way that would have produced any, any outcome that would have been favorable to Beijing. They could blow a lot of things up. They had a certain number of missiles, large outmoded air force, um, uh, equally somewhat, well, relatively small, but out, also outmoded Navy. 
So they could have broken China, no, no pun intended, um, but they really couldn't have advanced their issue. They certainly couldn't have achieved independence by force. Um, and the U.S. at the time, you know, was the global hegemon that had just won the Cold War and yet had still managed to retain the main structures of a stable, productive relationship with China. So they had some, they had something to lose. There was a strong incentive by Beijing not to overplay their hand, right? Uh, to make their point, take, teach a lesson, and then move on. And so when you saw these exercises, again, they, had, they hadn't done an amphibious drill, a large one on the Taiwan Strait for decades. So they had to invent it. You know, there, there was some interesting footage, if you're watching closely, of Chinese coverage of the troops storming ashore in the, in the 1995 exercise. You see troops swimming ashore and then disappearing behind a sand dune, and then troops run over the sand dune, except these guys are all dry. None <laughs> of them had been in the water. So it was quite literally like a made-for-TV event, and they were broadcasting coverage of it, including the missile launches, nightly on CCTV. There was a Dyson Airblade in the dunes. They all ran over it and dried off, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you, you described, like I said, the 95-96 the crisis as almost perfect. You know, all three parties uh, you know, could, in a sense, declare victory. Clearly not the case this time. You've also said that, that the 95-96 crisis would be sort of on the optimistic end of the spectrum uh, for what we expect now. You hasten to add that you don't necessarily mean this means war, but what do you think we might be in for here? What are, what's the range of potential responses we'll see from China? And I, I want to you know, make sure that I, I understand that this will play out over, over time. This is not sort of we will know the outcome tomorrow or anything. Right. There's an old saying, or there should be, that uh, you don't really um, tremble with fear when a chihuahua is barking at you as loudly as it can, but when a tiger clears its throat, you tend to pay attention. So without overdrawing the metaphor, in the mid-90s, the PLA was really kind of a chihuahua. It, it had mm -hmm. a large outmoded military. Unless you were stupid enough to invade China, though, it was hard for it to project any kind of power. Uh, so its land-based neighbors like Vietnam and India and others had to perhaps have concerns. But for those separated by a body of water and a large swath of air, it, you were relatively secure from the PLA. Uh, that hasn't been true for a very long time. And so consequently, when the Chinese want to show uh, the importance of a security interest on a border dispute or a maritime dispute, it's no longer about displays. You know, it, it's notable that the last really significant cross-strait display was in the mid-90s, that it didn't mean that China was comfortable heading into every Taiwan election cycle since. It was just they had other means to show it. And so they didn't bang trash can lids to disguise the feeble state of their military. They prepared for the possibility of lethal operations. And I think you see this clearly, too, that this is no longer a demonstration military with the islands they built in the South China Sea um, after 2014 uh, and the installation of fairly significant military capacity on those. And then what it's been doing on the Indian border since about 2019, which is major expansion of forces, facilities, and willingness to patrol aggressively in disputed areas and even uh, come blows with the Indian military. Uh, so you had the first deaths uh, in, in the Himalayas between China and India um, in, in decades. Yeah. And I think that's the lesson you should take from maybe what's going on now in the Taiwan Strait. If you think it's going to be a replay of 95, 96, you're, you're mistaken. 
because everything is different. Not only is the PLA very different with major power projection and long-range precision strike capabilities and, and nuclear and space, um, but the whole relationship with the United States is different. Um, you know, the two sides have basically declared each other mutually to be primary adversaries since 2017. The U.S. has taken action in, in almost every domain in economics with um, tariffs, sanctions, arms sales to Taiwan, arms sales, and uh, especially the uh, urging uh, China's neighbors to increase their military spending. So um, the context is rivalry, not this fundamentally stable relationship despite problems. Right. And then the other real thing that's different and is no longer stabilizing is that Taiwan is a full-fledged democracy with a growing percentage of their population disinterested in China's version of the civil war or any attractiveness to the idea of unification, uh, especially under a Chinese, a, China, a Chinese government that's led by the Communist Party. Yeah, entirely different context there. Let's talk a little bit about Nancy Pelosi's decision to go. First of all, what do we know? I think this we should start here. What do we know or what can we assume of the position of the Tsai Ing-wen government? Was Nancy Pelosi invited? Was that the first move? Or did she ask for an invitation? Did one come? And what has been its position about about this official visit in the run-up to not once it's a fait accompli, but in in the weeks prior. Do we know anything about that? I don't know. So I could speculate, hmm. which probably wouldn't be that useful. Um, you know, she kind of has her entire career has included strong criticism of Chinese human rights violations. Um, she was kind of first came to public attention when she was still in her first term as a, as a congresswoman from California when she visited Beijing and then staged a memorial service in Tiananmen Square. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that got people's attention. Um, it certainly got Beijing's attention. So I don't know if it's a personal motivation. I mean, the Chinese probably suspect because they, they understood what happened in the mid nineties with Li Denghui was that Taiwan spent a good deal of money lobbying, um, to enable that visiting, including to ultimately convince president Clinton. I don't know if that worked or if the U S would have done it anyway. And I don't know exactly what Mrs. Pelosi's, uh, motivations might have been for the visit other than to stand up to an increasingly autocratic and brutal Chinese regime, even compared to the rest of the post-Tiananmen era. But to show uh, her constituents, which can include a, a pretty strong contingent of Chinese Americans and Taiwanese Americans, uh, that she was still that same person, that she was being very consistent in her, in her willingness to stand up to China. But the, the Nancy Pelosi first-term congresswoman in 1991 is not the same as the Nancy Pelosi of today, who, of course, is Speaker of the House, second in line just behind Kamala Harris to become President of the United States. Um, how much of Beijing's reaction do you judge to be because of her and her record, her position in the line of succession, and the fact that she's of the same political party as the President? And how much of this is just Beijing's sense that However thick the next slice of salami, whether it's you know a nobody, a freshman congressperson, or Nancy Pelosi, it's gone. I mean, there's not enough to make a sandwich anymore. I mean, we've got the you know the the Biden quote unquote gaffes, the State Department fact sheet, the uh, proposed name change of the T in the acronym Tecro. You know, that's that's a lot of salami sliced off. I think little of it has to do with a personal view of the speaker. I think a lot of it has to do with some of the other factors you mentioned. 
I mean, in their mind, if she's uh, from the same party as the president, then he ought to be able to have veto power over her ability to do this trip. So as much as they may accept Biden's explanations about separation of powers and her independent authority as speaker to conduct travel, um, it's convenient to them and perhaps they believe it, but it's convenient for them not to believe it. And they much prefer to hold a unitary actor responsible in the United States and sort of pretend that the president has the kind of authority that his counterpart in China would have. Um, because otherwise they think they're giving us too many loopholes in the relationship. So for you, it's much more about the hollowing out of the one China policy as Beijing understands it, right? Well, and then I think from China's perspective, um, so you, you have the speaker's visit, which has now been realized as a reality, and they're reacting to that. But then they look at what's coming, which is hundreds of bills in the, on the Hill um, that name China or Taiwan, including bills that you said would uh, change the name of the T in TechRo, um, would um, establish a mechanism for direct U.S. taxpayer funding for um, uh, stockpiling weapons, material, and munitions in Taiwan, which is uh, the kind of agreement we only have with allies. Right. So it, 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 it's these slices of the salami, to use the vernacular, um, keep taking Taiwan from being a non-state that's dealt with carefully by the United States to being treated as, as a major non-NATO ally. Um, which sometimes it is called in in U.S. Uh, political uh, rhetoric. And and so they have to always decide where they draw the line. So if they're looking at how to react to a speaker visit today, they can look at a tweet by uh, Representative McCarthy, who said that if the Republicans get control of the House this fall, then he will certainly go to Taiwan. So there's no prospect of this getting better by showing restraint on the part of China. Hmm. The NSC's coordinator for strategic communications, John Kirby, said that nothing has changed in American policy toward China, and he defended Pelosi's right to visit Taiwan. Uh, I imagine it would be pretty tough to convince anyone in China, or or for that matter in Taiwan, or really even in in, in the U.S., uh, that nothing has changed when it's pretty obvious that much has changed. What is behind this assertion? I mean, what what does the Biden administration gain from clinging to the idea that, oh, no, no, everything is the same. Well, it's be, it's become one of the touchstones that whatever we do, and, and we still don't, you know, we still act with a lot of constraint, but not as much as we did 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. And the Chinese are aware of that, even if we aren't because of changes in administration or, you know, experts leaving government service. And so they're getting tired of hearing that the bucket of what represents constraint of U.S.-Taiwan policy is endlessly elastic or is an, you know, a, a, an infinity you know, sp- a string of salami. Right. Uh, so they have to decide then on their own when to draw the lines because as far as they can tell, U.S. isn't drawing them clearly enough and there's a prospect because of congressional action and the, the growing American antipathy toward China that it's only going to get worse. So the real hard decision for them was whether they make a big demonstration now, is this worth it, in order to try and get the U.S. to uh, recalibrate, or is this the beginning of uh, kind of a new and much darker phase of a relationship? Because again, one of the problems I have with what's maybe unfolding on the Taiwan Strait today is, unlike past crises, I don't know how this ends. There's no demarcation line, you know, like even the election that Taiwan's scheduled to have in 2024. Um, and there's likely to just be a, sort of a cycle now of, of escalation and, and retaliation. 
mostly in the verbal sphere, but in the economic sphere, Taiwan, China's already announced they're imposing new sanctions of hundreds of Taiwan firms involved in produce right. uh, exports to China. Um, and I think they're going to do more DPP targeting uh, of, of economic actors in Taiwan in order to uh, put the pain on the party in Taiwan that they believe is most responsible for uh, moves toward independence. So some of the more dovish think tankers in the Chinese policy world are urging restraint by Xi Jinping, urging him to embrace da zhihui, great wisdom, big wisdom. And uh, one of the, the things that they're asking is to consider this from the point of view of American domestic politics and to just sort of write this off as a performative step that the House Speaker does that, that Beijing can afford to ignore if it just understands it for what it is, which is just about domestic politics. I mean, Beijing might not openly accept this explanation of Biden's that there is a separation of powers in the United States, despite this being like a pretty excellent demonstration of just that. Uh, but they, they, they certainly understand that this is about, you know, shoring up congressional Democrats against this charge of being soft on China. Um, there's got to be people in Beijing who, who get this, no? Isn't this a possible way for them to not, quote-unquote, overreact? Um, there, there used to be. Um, and I think there were some very strong America's watchers in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and even in uh, the party research office. Um, but because of the kind of trajectory of U.S.-China relations and inter, kind of inter-bureaucratic competition within the MFA, uh, those people haven't been promoted and a lot of them, a lot of them have left the, left the system. So you have mm. fewer senior and adroit, you know, uh, observers of the United States. And then, um, you know, to try and get China's leaders to accept it, they need to demonstrate some level of strategic empathy, which, you know, in the past they have. I think you had an example of that with President Jiang Zemin um, after the EP3 collision where uh, Chinese fighter ran into our reconnaissance aircraft in 2001. Right. Um, there seemed to be a lot of understanding both by the U.S. and China about and a focus on by each side on how to resolve this quickly. Um, but a lot of the whole underlying imperative, how each view the relationship, how they view the other, is just so radically different now that I, you know, if there was a similar incident today, I, I don't think it would be wrapped up in 11 days. I think we'd have a something closer to a Pueblo crisis. You'd have a long, drawn-out set of negotiations and recriminations um, over who was at fault. And because the willingness of either side to um, show, well, something that might be perceived as weakness rather than reasonableness just seems very lacking. Hmm. So just as you urge strategic empathy on, uh, or I certainly do, on, on China and wish they could understand the domestic political context in, in which all of this stuff takes place. If you had the chance to, to talk to your American colleagues and explain to them Chinese domestic considerations, domestic political considerations, uh, how would you go about explaining to them what Xi is up against right now? Because it seems to me, you know, he's had a pretty tough year and he's uh, about to, to start his first his first bonus term is about to start his third term uh, in, in October or November this year. Um, how would you how would you explain this? Well, I usually start by saying that of the top 10 things that keep Xi Jinping awake at night, Taiwan probably isn't one of them unless it's a situation like we're in now that 
China, as you know, faces a wealth of pressing problems to deal with. Despite all the success, despite rapid economic growth and building a powerful military, um, they're still struggling to come up with a, a new economic model that can generate high growth that isn't as dependent on exports, which the U.S. has now shown we can credibly threaten. And in the meantime, you know, he's, he's also looking at uh, looming demographic challenges. And then China is also dealing with what's facing the rest of the world due to uh, the post-COVID economic conditions and the war in Ukraine, which is right. food shortages, secure energy security problems. So um, he has a lot on his plate. And, you know, he didn't need a crisis on the Taiwan Strait. But since we've decided to give him one, then he's going to use it to his best advantage. And for most Chinese leaders, that means uh, an, a complete inability to appear weak. Right. So it ups the ante for him to demonstrate resolve. Even if no one dies, even if China stages um, large, uh, impressive, and potentially risky exercises, but doesn't escalate from there to actual kinetic attack. He has to deal with public opinion, not the same way a U.S. president does, because the Communist Party has as significant means, as you know, to censor, to uh, control what's printed or appears on websites or in chat or social media. But they're always sensitive to this idea of appearing weak, especially to outside pressure, to foreign pressure. Right. Um, and so there's there's literally no downside and not much upside right now to demonstrating uh very much a strategic empathy for the United States. John, you've drawn parallels to another international crisis that happened just on the eve of the 18th Party Congress back in 2012, when Japan, when the Japanese government announced the nationalization of the Diaoyu or Senkaku Islands. Uh, can you draw those parallels out a little more explicitly uh, and talk maybe more broadly about what lessons we might learn from the 2012 Diaoyu Dao episode? Um, sure. Uh, I think that actually that's a lot kind of more um, apt comparison than 95-96 or any of the other cross-strait stuff because, one, it involved Xi Jinping. So it was on the eve of his elevation to the post-premier party general secretary and chairman of the Central Military Commission, the three top jobs in the, in the party state system. And Japan has always been a visceral issue because of their troubled history with China um, from dating from World War II. Um, and so uh, when the Japanese government stepped in to prevent a rightist group from using private funds to, quote, nationalize, which is a term the Chinese use, these four islands in the Senkakus or Diaoyudao, the Chinese reacted very strongly. They, you know, they immediately charged Japan with violating an agreement since 1998 that left the decision on the Senkakus unresolved rather than trying to assert that it was either side sovereign territory um, and then sent large Coast Guard flotillas into the Senkakus or Diaoyudao to jointly patrol to show that China could exercise administrative powers over these islands, just as the Japanese Coast Guard and occasionally Japanese Navy had. And the, the most interesting sort of takeaway was there were there were protests, major protests in China in the wake of Japanese action on on the Senkakus um, that China then struggled to control. Right. Um, and that Chinese uh, dual administration and Coast Guard operations in the Senkakus continues to this very day, that episodically about at least once a month or perhaps more often or less, depending on weather and uh, political situation, uh, you'll see Chinese Coast Guard vessels go into those islands and sail with inside uh, what's called a contiguous zone, which is 24 nautical miles, and even inside the territorial waters of uh, each, of those, each of those rocks. 
And so it shows that China didn't just bluster or threaten Japan. It took action. You know, it, it took steps that it continues to this very day to demonstrate its point. And I think that's one way to think about what's likely to come out of even a non-kinetic, relatively peaceful, at least interregnum over Taiwan in the current uh, looming uh, fourth Taiwan Strait crisis, which is it's not over in a single act. It's probably going to have multiple stages and iterations. And China will ramp things up or down depending on how they need to, at least through Taiwan's presidential elections in 2024 and perhaps our own. Let's talk a little bit about some of the potential actions that that China might take. Uh, there are already reports of cyber attacks uh, on Taiwan government websites. It's not clear whether those are freelancers or state directed at this point, but uh, I suppose that was to be expected. What are some contingencies that you've already seen uh, people talking about? And more importantly, what are some that you haven't seen people talking about? Like one that I kind of imagine and 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 sort of, sort of horrified by the prospect of is it wouldn't take much for example for them to declare or to demand demilitarization of the near offshore islands of Kimoi or Jinmen and Mazu uh it's just you know Kimoi especially it's just a stone's throw from Xiamen would we have an effective way to prevent China from doing something like that to demand demilitarization un- under the th- threat of artillery fire? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, I'm cautious because I keep telling you that I don't think that past precedent is a really good predictor of where we are now, sure, where sure. this is likely to go. So then, of course, my experience all rests on things that I lived through and witnessed. Um, I, I'd note that China has shown an amazing, you know, amazingly broad palette when it comes to bringing the full power of its sort of party state regime to bear to pursue national goals, especially those involving sovereignty uh, or territorial integrity. And and you can see it in Xinjiang, uh, where they seem willing to uh, imprison for undetermined periods millions of people, um, and what they did in Hong Kong in 2019. So um, and they they do it in a, in a full spectrum way that includes the invocation or passage of new laws that undergird China's then courses mm-hmm. of actions that they will pursue um, and a series of other things in the economic sphere. You know, in, in, in the military, in the U.S. military, there's a term called dime fill, which I'm now going to be unable to uh, re, uh, rep, re, repeat for you, but it's defense or it's diplomacy, um, information, military, economic uh, and then something, something lawfare. And the Chinese yeah. have really copied that. So they prefer per, pursue sort of full spectrum policies that are then organized and, and arrayed by the Communist Party. So you can almost have no end of things they would do in order to punish the bad actors they see on Taiwan or in the U.S. Like I could easily see them um, slap personal sanctions on Ms. Pelosi and other congressional uh, members of her delegation that arrived in Taiwan. Uh, it would be it might be meaningless depending on how much business they or their husbands or investments do in, in either China or Taiwan. <laughs> um, I could see them start to really uh, degrade what what the status quo had been in the Taiwan Strait, where both sides represented kind of a central demarcation line. Um, and the Chinese made a statement that was in the U.S. press a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago, where it said that you know the Taiwan Strait is not international waters. And there are sovereignty on both sides. And with these exercises they've now announced with 
live fire closure areas ringing Taiwan is sort of uh, underscoring that point that they have been, you know, I'll I'll be, they've been nice in letting Taiwan pretend it has a 12 mile limit, but in fact, those are Chinese waters. So some of the two of the closure areas that they've announced are actually inside Taiwan's territorial waters. uh, If they actually draw them the way that they've announced in the press. Um, And so it's almost no end of things they could do. Um, uh, in in many in many domains, and I, I usually find that we're insufficiently um, imaginative when it comes to really understanding how they can bring that party state apparatus to bear in every dimension uh, in order to challenge status quo and to move public opinion or government policy. So you've said that uh, a major crisis today, I mean, perhaps the one that we're now seeing unfolding, will only produce losers, no winners. Uh, I obviously agree with you. Um, and even in a relatively optimistic case, it's hard for me to imagine that this isn't going to have awful effects on the entirety of the global economy and on, on geopolitics. I mean, no matter which of the options, then as you say, Beijing has a pretty extensive palette and lots of choices. No matter what Beijing does, um, my strong sense is there's going to be, you know, more appetite in DC for export controls and uh, calls for more decoupling. Beijing will also, you know, by its token, it, it is going to seek to punish Taiwan economically in, in other ways. All of this means, I think, you know, Chinese manufacturers are going to want to hoard chips, which is almost certainly going to pr- prove really inflationary. Uh, I think it was a contributing factor to the inflation we're seeing now. It's going to, you know, cause all sorts of supply chain problems, another chip shortage. Uh, it means arms racing, Right. Uh, it means in all likelihood an inability to get China to cooperate on other transnational issues that that we should regard as really important. China obviously is going to have less appetite now to sort of water down its support for Russia in in Ukraine. I mean, it's going to feel less inhibited uh, in that regard. I mean, there's all sorts of security issues that we would like China's cooperation on, which I, I think we're, we're not going to be able to see. I mean, what have I left out? I mean, what, what else happens here as a result of further deterioration of, of U.S.-China relations? Well, I, I'd be careful. Maybe, I, God, maybe I'm a closet optimist. Um, none of the th- areas where China cooperated with us, uh, where it's generally been ascribed as they've been on our side, whether it's climate change or global health initiatives or nuclear nonproliferation, uh, participation in JCPOA to forestall Iran's nuclear program, and uh, cooperation, especially intense cooperation over North Korea in 2017. None of those are favors they're doing for us. Each Mm -hmm. is in pursuit of China's own goals. They just happen to coincide and align with ours. So I'm actually not that worried that they are going to, as an act of peak, suddenly adopt the opposite position, encourage Kim to do more nuclear underground testing um, or validate uh, Iran's nuclear ambitions or burn more coal than they plan to in order to um, hasten climate change. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Beijing will cut off its nose despite its face occasionally. I mean, um, they could, but I'd expect them to do it more rhetorically than in reality. They can say a lot of things and do. They've threatened and indeed claimed they've imposed sanctions on U.S. companies involved in Taiwan arms sales, but then they, you know, in the past never followed through. Hmm. So it was, you know, I don't want to make a cultural argument, but saying the intent and, and doing it are maybe two different things sometimes when it comes down to things that actually harm China's interests and make their economic lot or foreign policy with other but people, you know, more problematic. 
because uh, while the U.S. may may be uh, convinced that, like the United States, we're in a strategic rivalry, China doesn't want to simultaneously be in a strategic rivalry with Western Europe, right? Um, or with the more democratic leading countries in the global south or in, in ASEAN, especially. So th- they have you know varied interests, and I don't think um, you know that barring just un, 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 unimpeded escalation in degradation of relations. We're not yet, we may be rivals, but we're not yet, you know, uh, locked into a struggle of enmity where we're willing to do something if it hurts our opponent 1% more than it hurts ourselves. <laughs> but but in the meantime, you know, it, it seems to me still that uh, we're failing to exercise that kind of strategic empathy. Uh, we're not really able to see what this looks like out Beijing's windows. I mean, I, I saw earlier today, Jake Sullivan was saying that given the precedent of Newt Gingrich's trip over a quarter century ago, it, this is the historical norm. And then that what, you know, it's on China for reacting to that. I mean, that, that seems sort of odd to me to, to suggest that something that happened once 25 years or 27 years ago is an historical norm. I, I feel like there's an awful lot of tone deafness and, and, uh, a kind of willful disregard for for China's sensibilities here. Well, if I could wax philosophic for a moment. Please. Um, You know, we're in the early stages of strategic rivalry, and the only model we have for thinking about how this could play out is the Cold War. And so our priors are probably setting us up for some mistakes. Um, So uh, I think there are people in this administration, they previously won, that feel like we had fallen behind and were underprepared for it military, economic, and political diplomatic challenge that China presents. So we're, we're sort of using inflated language sometimes in order to hasten our uh, our, our, our recognition of, of this future and to prepare for it adequately. And certainly you can look in domains like defense spending and individual acquisition decisions of the services and conclude that we have a lot of catching up to do. Um I guess if I were to be bold or dumb enough to offer advice to current administration, it would be try to use this crisis creatively. Um, you may not like the outcome of the 95-96 crisis, but um, I think the U.S. gained benefit from a creative approach in its aftermath. And if we are in a new Cold War and if China has been cast to play the part of the Soviet Union, then we ought to think about what gains we got out of something like the Cuban Missile Crisis, where both sides stared into the abyss of potential nuclear war. Um, and China is a very capable nuclear power, and we should remember that. And we we used the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis as a reason to set up a whole host of confidence-building measures and strategic communication to avoid misunderstanding um, and, and, and escalation in any future such incident. Um, and it doesn't mean that the rest of the Cold War from 1962 played out, you know, in a beautiful panoply of detente. It certainly didn't with proxy wars and other cases of nuclear uh, potential threat. Um, but there were rules and we didn't cut off communication um, because we concluded that anything the Chinese say were going to be lies anyway. So why listen? Um, and so I think it's a good reason to reopen, you know, selectively and for U.S. purposes, the right communication channels. Um, and try and both explain our positions with better clarity and regularity and, and perhaps listen to theirs. John Culver, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, uh, for sharing your insights and philosophical waxings. Uh, let's, let's move on now to recommendations. 
First, a very quick reminder that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina, soon to be renamed The China Project. And that the best way to support the work that we do, whether as SubChina or as The China Project, is to subscribe to our email newsletter, China Access. It's more important than ever, I hope you're all aware, to keep informed on what's happening. So please, if you like the work that we do, do subscribe. All right, John, let's move on to recommendations. What do you have for us? I'm retired and very boring. So I'm going to play to a stereotype and I'm going to recommend something that was just recommended to me to reread by Evan Feigenbaum. I think he's a mutual friend, yeah. which is a study in a paper that Alan Romberg did on mm-hmm. the history of U.S.-China diplomatic um, relations, especially through these uh, successive crises. It's a really good primer on the history and how the U.S. thought and thinks and perhaps should think about uh, such events going forward. The other is a, a book written by another mutual friend, Ryan Haas, called Stronger, which mm-hmm. is, you know, there've been a, there's been a wave of China books, usually with the word dragon wall or something in the cover. Um, his is different. It actually proposes a path forward that doesn't accept American weakness or China's inevitable rise or the need for, you know, some Manichaean struggle. It's about um, smart competition. It's about um, arraying ourselves in a way that serves our interests and is more attractive to allies and partners uh, and actually more more capable in terms of uh, discomforting our allies than simply pursuing competition for its own sake. Yeah, I, I've had Ryan on the show talking about his book, and I, I love it. I love his framing of competitive interdependence. I love this sort of, sort of focus on running faster, not trying to trip the other guy on American renewal. Uh, and it, it, it pairs nicely with this book that I just interviewed the author of, and, and that show was originally slated to go up this week, but I'm going to reverse the order of things because uh, this is a little more timely. But I talked to Ollie Wine about his book uh, called uh, America's Great Power Opportunity, uh, which is, I think there's, there's very little daylight between the arguments of these two books. And I think the, the author very much agrees with me and, and, Ryan is he describes as as a mentor, and uh, we spend a little time just sort of talking about what a great guy Ryan is too. So <laughs> he really is, truly is. John, I think that's an excellent recommendation, and so is, you know, while we're on the the subject of Evan, uh, Evan is a really good person to follow right now if you're if you're interested in sort of some good cutting wisdom on uh, the present security crisis because uh, he knows his way around security crisis and and has very very smart things to say about how people, what people are getting wrong. And uh, for example, by thinking of this as just sort of a simple binary between possible war and possible peace that uh, and re- reminds us that this is going to play out over some period of time. Anyway, I, I'll go completely away from um, this crisis toward a happier place. I, I spent a week uh, mm-hmm. in in Canada, mostly in Banff National Park, but I want to recommend not staying in Banff itself, as cute of a town as it is. I think it's been sort of horribly overrun by tourists. Uh, it's not so cute anymore. I think it's kind of kitschy and slightly awful, uh, although the surroundings are just, you know, breathtakingly beautiful. Stay instead in Canmore in Alberta, uh, which is just south of Banff National Park. And it's just a quick drive. Um, this is, you know, 10 minutes and you're, you're in the national park. Uh, Canmore is, you know, it's a real place. Real people are there. It's, it's, uh, it's also a whole lot more affordable, and it's just as lovely. There are a lot of hikes right 
you know, from the town itself, from the town center. So uh, that's my suggestion. Uh, and definitely get out and check out the Canadian Rockies. It's just beautiful. <laughs> it's just absolutely stunning. John, thank you so much for, for, for joining me on the show and, and for dispensing so much wisdom. It's my pleasure. Uh, I wish I didn't depress myself as much as your audience, but um, it's been a real uh, pleasure to be on it today and have this conversation. Well, we'll be talking to you again very, very soon, I imagine, because, uh, I mean, given how many fantastic pearls of wisdom you've just dropped in the last 45 minutes, I think it's a sure thing that we'll have you back on. So thanks so much. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.